My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. And on today's episode, I will be taking a look at Marcus Schleinzer's film, Michael, a look at the Disney Blu-ray release of John Carter, as well as a bit of a moan about people who slag off films just because they are box office bombs. I'll be taking a look at the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time poll. But before I get into any of that, I think it is worth taking a moment of reflection at the tragic news that came out this weekend of the death of Tony Scott. I think like the majority of people, my initial reaction to the news that Tony Scott committed suicide was one of complete shock because we sort of look at things very simplistically in the fact that you know, he, he had someone who is a massively successful director who has all the money he could ever spend and a beautiful wife and children and you wonder what more is there to life and of course it's situations that make me realize that uh, really all of this doesn't really matter in terms of how happy it makes you it's obviously what goes on inside which is what counts and for whatever reason he decided to take his own life this was obviously someone who was had had his demons and unfortunately they have um, got the better of him and he's decided to end his life but I think it's also in situations like this where you have to really look at the achievements of the individual now I would not say that I was a massive fan of Tony Scott's work if anyone who knows me would know that uh, True Romance and Top Gun are probably one of my kind of two least liked films um, to have ever come out but I was surprised when I began looking over his filmography just how many of them that I did really enjoy. I I, I don't know if I'm kind of um, in a minority here, but I absolutely love The Hunger. I think it's a brilliant vampire film, and you know it's it's a very sort of modern take on the vampire genre. You know, obviously very dark films normally. And this was incredibly light, and beautiful to look at, and uh, has a fantastic performance by David Bowie in it. I am um, like I said, the aforementioned Top Gun. I I, I really don't like this film. It was something which I um. I didn't grow up watching it. I think that's kind of vital in that kind of appreciation for it. I watch. I, I I first saw it a few years ago, and I was just absolutely cringing throughout it. But obviously, I think you have to look at it from the perspective that this was very much an iconic film from the eighties. It was a cultural phenomenon. I don't think there's any kind of denying that. And it was really, I suppose, as well. Scott was one of the, the, the directors, you know, along with his brother Ridley and kind of Adrian Lyon and people like that, who came over from commercials and applied those aesthetic sensibilities to films. And they do have obviously a very distinct and unique look. Beverly Hills Cop Two. It's been so long since I've seen it. Again, I wasn't a, a particular fan of that. I've never seen Revenge. Uh, I didn't like Days of Heaven. Uh, Last Boy Scout. I think I probably quite enjoyed as a as a youngster, but I haven't gone back to it in many years. True Romance, um, I, I think that's for another day, my feelings on that film, I, I really didn't enjoy it, but Crimson Tide, which was his follow-up in 95, I really enjoyed Crimson Tide, and I've gone back and watched it since, and uh, I still think it holds up today, it's a, the, the tension and the kind of claustrophobia of that film is absolutely incredible, really, and I, I seem to remember when I watched it, the, um, the it had, a, I almost think it had a kind of a very un-Hollywood ending in the fact that kind of like both the lead protagonists kind of survive through the film and you get to kind of see the fact that um, in essence they were kind of both right to do what they do and I remember being quite impressed with that but I, I always sort of maintain to this day I think it would have been quite good if uh, the Gene Hackman character was right I thought that would have been a very uh, very Roman Polanski ending perhaps haven't seen The Fan any of The State I really really enjoyed when I saw that Spy Game I've never seen Man on Fire which came out in 2004 I've watched that film several times I, I, I still think it's one of those uh, a real kick-ass type of um, brutal film 
a lot of people said it was very conservative in uh, its message, I suppose, but I, I don't know, I kind of enjoyed it. It felt like a good old-fashioned 70s B-movie kind of revenge thriller that was kind of given a bigger budget and obviously a lot of style. Haven't seen Domino, haven't seen Deja Vu, haven't seen The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and I haven't seen Unstoppable. So then there's certainly a few films there which, um, yeah, I might go back to at some stage. Uh, if they appear on my cable or something, I'll check them out. But... Also, you have to look at the work he did in commercials and how that kind of really, along with Brother Ridley, of course, how that really kind of defined the visual style for, for many, many years. And he was a complete innovator, uh, how he went about films. I mean, this is someone who a lot of people make that kind of uh, very obvious criticism that it was all kind of style and no substance, however. But he was someone who I think uh, just had a very much a kind of a, a Jackson Pollock attitude to his art form, which was to kind of throw it all on there and kind of see, saw what worked and saw what didn't work and kind of adapt his style around that. And certainly, you know, you know when you're watching a Tony Scott film and to sort of be able to say that about a director in this age, I think is um, a very noteworthy observation because, again, you know, directors... Uh, in the Hollywood system, I think, get sometimes lost, or when, and not even sometimes, a lot of the times actually get lost in the fact that they are just sort of making mediocre, um, very generic films. And uh, although certainly I don't think there was anything particularly um, daring about the stories he told, he certainly shot them through with a lot of panache. And I suppose that kind of leads me on really to talk about kind of Tony Scott being a real genuine character. I mean, this was someone who he did stand out from the crowd, whether it was that. Um, very familiar red cap he always wore or his cigar he he was certainly a personality and one that seemed to be very kind of gregarious and outgoing I was listening to an interview with him um, done on the BBC about three years ago and he was kind of a, he's a very funny guy and spoke very kind of lovingly about his brother and his relationship with Ridley and the kind of the company that they'd built together and uh, how much he they enjoyed working together and very candid about his childhood because um, they grew up in kind of uh, northern England and um, as some people might say, uh, they kind of, they talk about that area as being quite kind of depressing and things like that. And Tony was kind of very honest about how much he enjoyed growing up there. And I think that was kind of refreshing because a lot of people tried to uh, stick a kind of false romanticised version of their childhood. But it was very hard and he doesn't, they never kind of talk about anything like that, the Scott brothers. It's always kind of very fond and I think very refreshing when people talk about their lives in that way. And it's just so sad because obviously um, it, you know, he has taken his own life and you obviously feel extremely sorry for his family. But especially, I mean, I, I particularly feel for Ridley Scott in this instance because their, their other brother actually died as well. And you know, knowing how close I am with my brother, well, the same thing, you know, to go through that twice must be absolutely appalling. And the other thing as well that's kind of annoyed me about all this, unfortunately, is the sort of the uh, the press coverage. Um there's been a kind of a, a few false things going around. Apparently, um, I've, I've heard one report that he jumped off the bridge wearing his cap. And you know, do we really need to know these kind of little details? You know, there was one going around that perhaps he had um, brain cancer and he was kidding himself because of that, which has um, kind of been dismissed today. But really, kind of the things I find most depressing about it, the fact that. Uh, it's come out today that a few people who have actually um, taken pictures and recorded the incident and are now trying to sell them. Apparently the website TMZ was said they've been offered um, some footage from the incident. I just think it's deplorable that people, uh, you know, how, how can you possibly record someone's death? You, and then you obviously find out who it is and then think, you know, 
oh, I'll try and make some money out of this. I, I think it's a pretty sad state of affairs that people do that. And there was just little things as well. There's a picture of um, Ridley Scott at the departure lounge at Heathrow with his bag. And I just thought, you know, do you think he needs that at this moment? You know, do, do we need to really see um, someone uh, who's obviously in a very kind of sad state uh, putting their bag in at the checkout at Heathrow, obviously in very private time as well. And I just think, again, it's, it's this fact that the... Uh, the media is uh, has reached a kind of point of moral bankruptcy, and I just really, you, you would think that they would have a little bit more um, respect for not only Tony Scott but also his family, but obviously not. So a great loss, I think. I mean, like I said, I, mean, I wasn't a huge fan of his work, but other people were, and they were tremendously successful films for the most part. You know, this was someone who was an A-list Hollywood director. He was, and by all accounts, someone who was very well liked by everyone he worked with. I know, you know people off, don't often speak ill of the dead, but certainly, you know, just hearing lots of the people who've talked, especially people like Denzel Washington, who, you know, they've collaborated quite frequently. And I, I don't think you would probably get to work with someone like Denzel Washington on more than one occasion if there wasn't something between the two. And uh, certainly, you know, again, there was a, you know, Tom Cruise was saying about how uh, sad he was and the fact they were even looking at doing a sequel to Top Gun which will probably never happen now but um, there is going to be another film coming out next year as I understand that he was filming with Christian Bale so yeah that might be uh, well worth checking out and I, I certainly hope that it is a um, a fitting epitaph to what was a very colourful and successful career and again I think my thoughts are with his family at this time okay so moving on and this August saw a once-in-a-decade event which often gets the world of film um, in a tiz and certainly gets people talking about film in a very impassioned way because it was time for the Sight and Sound, the greatest films of all time poll. Now, for those of you who don't know what Sight and Sound is, it is a monthly publication launched um, from the British Film Institute here in England and it is a film magazine which has wrongly I believe over the years attained something of a reputation for being a little bit elitist a little bit snobbish perhaps and it isn't that at all actually for anyone who bothers to actually read it what sight and sound is it's a more of an academic approach to film so it will have um, contemporary analysis of films from all types of cinema. Um, there was an article last month about Prometheus, for example, but you will also find about articles and essays on people like Jean Renoir, and just about any form of cinema is covered in a very interesting... And, yeah, I, I don't... I say interesting as well, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's written on it, that's the whole point of it, really. But it does get you kind of thinking and talking about film in a way which... I find film magazines just don't interest me anymore to the point, you know, things like Empire, Total Film, they just seem to be more kind of, um, you know, on-set exclusives from films that I don't talk, you know, I'm not interested in, so, you know, I remember that just Empire magazine just constantly touting the Transformers films, and these exclusive online, uh, sorry, on-set interviews and pictures with the directors, and they're all sort of saying these kind of, very kind of publicity sound bites, you know, it's going to be darker and you know it goes places where the other ones didn't and it's just bullshit really and that's why one of the reasons why I completely stopped buying things like that but Sight and Sound has been one a magazine that's been with me for many many years 
So this month of August, the magazine has gone through something of a revamp and it's slightly smaller in size and that's not a content issue. It's actually just because the magazine is physically smaller, which if you're kind of coming into you won't make any difference at all. I personally think it doesn't really matter. It seems a bit more kind of, um, I suppose, uh, it seems a little bit more thicker, I guess, but it's a kind of really just a kind of a cosmetic change. Um, there's going to be a few kind of new features coming in. They're going to be doing an article where each month they take a look at a particular kind of genre or film movement. And over the months, it will kind of expand to be this kind of encyclopedia kind of history of cinema, which is going to be quite good. The kind of the, the quality and the kind of the I suppose the, the interest in the articles is still there. There's a brilliant um, little thing this month on... Um, Orson Welles' film F for Fake, which is uh, one of those films that I really want to get to on the 24 Frames cast, although it might be appearing on another podcast um, that I will be involved in, and I will uh, I will leave it at that for the time being as to kind of what, what I'm, I'm talking about. But overall, the, the mag, the, the content is still high quality. It's not the it's not the kind of magazine where you can sort of like if you picked it up on the newsstand and flick through it you'd probably see more lines of writing than you would pictures and that I suppose that really kind of just indicates what type of a magazine it is but it's certainly if you have any kind of interest in cinema they will you will find something in there to be to get your teeth into and I mean I, I personally I, I, th I think it's a great place to get kind of recommendations for films and film movements there was a brilliant article a few months ago on about uh, Russian science fiction films I'm not kind of talking about Solaris either these kind of films that they made about kind of trips to the moon and things like that and it's kind of really put me on this kind of hunt to track some of these titles down and one day perhaps I'll even get around to doing an episode on it but overall Science Sound is a great way of spending an afternoon I normally kind of sit th I uh, go through it on a Sunday and uh, especially in those kind of winter months where you can just pot yourself upstairs with a couple of glasses of wine and read some kind of interesting articles about film the good news is though with this relaunch is that they have kind of amended the pricing structures so if you do live abroad you can now get the magazine sent over to you for a greatly reduced price but perhaps even if you don't want to do that they have now have a online only subscription which means that it's it's not as much as actually having the magazine physically delivered to your door, but in the kind of the age of all the Kindle and the iPad and even on your computer, there's various ways in which you can get hold of it. So there really is no excuse. Even more exciting though is that the British films have digitised every single back edition of Sight and Sound, and it's a publication that goes back almost eighty years. So it's going to be a pretty incredible. Um, resource for looking at the kind of film history really over the past 80 years and especially in how critical opinion changes over years because that's certainly a pertinent issue which I think I will get into more detail with this poll in a little bit but certainly that's oh, by the way is going to come at a slightly additional price I think it's 20 pounds a year extra to have that option and it obviously won't include the newer stuff but certainly I think I will be purchasing that when they do make it available um, as I understand I think it was going to launch uh, middle of this month so hopefully it should be any day now you can uh, pick that up and uh, when I do I will report back as to how good it is because it, it, it's just so interesting because obviously you have as well the various kind of critical film movements and the kind of the common the contemporary commentary on uh, the various sort of ages of cinema we've been through you know, from the British kitchen sink to the French new wave it will all be covered and I think it's going to make for fascinating reading and just that you can kind of I wonder just sort of looking at sort of what people made of kind of Goddard at the time and films like Breathless and you know did, did they sort of what were their predictions of his greatness um fulfilled or not it's certainly going to be good stuff sitting through that but 
getting back to their greatest films of all time poll which is what I am here to talk about I think it's worth just talking about polls and lists in general now if you go on my blog you will see there is a top 10 page where I've kind of just really on a whim just put up what my kind of top 10 favorite kind of films are top 10 favorite documents that kind of thing and I think I have to stress the fact that these are personal um favorites they are kind of selections from the from the heart and perhaps not the head and what often happens with these is is that people take them way 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 too seriously and it's like i think it's it's sort of a a fact that people feel like someone is telling them what films they have to like and i think that is an entirely wrong way of looking at these types of lists because at the end of the day i think film is such an objective thing for example I personally think the film Sucker Punch is really good and I would almost say it was one of the most imaginative and creative films that have come out in recent memory and a lot of people think I'm taking the piss and I I, I sort of I I try and I try and justify or I explain my reasoning which I'm not going to try and do which I'm not going to do here sorry but I think I make completely valid points, but also the fact that people who say I'm talking absolute shit also have completely valid points. And it is just opinion. You can argue for as long as you want that, um, you know, whose opinions, right? But then it is just opinion. And I don't really care if people don't agree with that. Would I put Sucker Punch on the greatest films of all time list? Well, no, certainly I wouldn't. But I certainly think it's one which is deserving of more credit than it actually got. And I think perhaps in years to come, it will be regarded as something of a, not necessarily a classic, but a film which is long overdue some praise and love. But now I think the a few aspects to get clear of the sight and sound list is it's a, there are two lists there's one which is when they poll directors from all over the world and another one where they poll uh, critics from all over the world and it's the critics list that they tend to kind of tout around as being the list by which they are saying that the the, the, the top films are ranked and I think that's quite important to just take a little look at that because as you will know I have on previous episode of the uh, 24 frames cast um, riled against people who tend to watch the same types of films over and over again from the same types of directors and don't really have any intention or interest in actually kind of expanding the palette of cinema that they watched. Now, again, I might get into the territory of sounding like a complete snob here, but really, truthfully, I am not particularly interested in those types of people's opinion on cinema for example if you really you know if you could kind of honestly sit there and tell me the dark knight again i, I keep going back to chris Nolan and the dark knight but it just seems to be the kind of the i suppose the template for which this type of criticism is that i, that I hate and you know, people go on they go oh, the, the the dark knight is pretty much close to cinematic perfection well you you, you you can't have seen enough films so therefore i don't think i can really sort of I, I, I suppose I'd be interested in any recommendations that you have, but were you to kind of really try and tell me and have a kind of a, a very um, objective de- debate as to what the best films in all of cinema history are, I'm not really going to be that interested. And certainly lots of the critics who they poll as well, you know, I don't necessarily agree with their opinion a lot of the time. And, you know, this is the thing, you know, mainstream critics, um, people like Armand White, for example, um, 
I'm not particularly interested in his opinion on cinema because I think it's his is a type of criticism which is more based around the fact that he's offering a counter sort of opinion which is so contrived and clearly is there just to garner web page views and the wrong types of film criticism because I think it sort of plays into the hands of people who again don't know very much about film and I think it comes back to the sort of the, the problem with sort of mainstream cinema is that it's a popularist vote and if I go on for example the IMDB top 250 films list I read out the 10 films currently ranked as being the best voted for by users so at number one, we have The Shawshank Redemption. At number two, The Godfather. At number three, The Godfather Part Two. At number four, Pulp Fiction. At number five, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. At number six, Twelve Angry Men. At number seven, Schindler's List. At number eight, The Dark Knight. At number nine, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. And at number ten, Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. And I think that's quite telling, really, because it tells you that the people who vote on these lists are mainly interested in American Hollywood cinema and I think the evidence is there. The first foreign language film to crop up is at number 17 which is The Seven Samurai. There's another one, number 19, City of God. So the top 20 there are two films not in the English language. It is not a particularly encompassing list that really kind of shows a rich diversity of cinema that is out there and it's because they are popularist lists. They are ones which kind of train can change on a daily basis they are ones which are done by people just kind of hitting like buttons, you know, the type of thing you see on Facebook. And I don't really, they are really just films, you know, what 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 films do I like? They are not ones which are designed really to represent anything other than an individual's love of that particular film. So the reason why I like the Sight and Sound poll is firstly, it is obviously I trust I, I I don't not so much trust the opinion but I respect the opinion of a great deal of the people who write in it but because it is once every ten years it has a certain kind of event status to it and if you look at the list of the people who they've asked to contribute to it it is from all over the world I, I read what on Facebook someone made a um the rather incorrect point that it was a kind of a, a a list which was compiled by British people which is entirely wrong it is made up from people all over the world and that's important to me because obviously it shows in one respect the universality of cinema when the same films are popping up on the same on the same list from people from all over the world it, it must kind of show I think how those films it doesn't matter kind of what language or culture the person's from how they obviously kind of speak to them on a, on a universal level and in a way that's quite encouraging that film is able to kind of get over so many borders and what have you and kind of just people react the same to it no matter where they are in the world. I also think it's quite nice that they do do two polls that they poll critics and directors because you know I'm obviously trying to um, I'm making a film next month and it's always nice to know what kind of the directors who I like what kind of films they're interested in because obviously um, I, I certainly think the way I'm designing my film, the shots especially, I've, I've been reminded of a few of the directors that I do like um, in them and it's quite nice to see kind of what are the what's in the DNA, I suppose, of who they are as a filmmaker. And also you have the critics list because I think it's, it's important to separate the, the two in that I sometimes feel that people ascribe too much value to a critic's opinion and a good critic should promote I think 
good debate. That is their role. And it's not to sort of make very obvious statements. Oh, The, the Dark Knight Rises is, is a stupid film that makes no sense and blah, blah, blah. It's not really interested. I'm more interested in, you know, what, what what's the... Uh, you know, what kind of messages are in the dark night? You know, does its kind of ambition, as it were, let it down? Or, you know, things like that. Not just this very kind of obvious, easy criticism in a way. You know, let's let's talk about the plot holes. That's the one which people get love to go on about at the moment. I've noticed it seems to be the kind of the critical standpoint. You know, how many plot holes can we identify in the film? How does Bane get out of Gotham City and take Batman to the prison and get back in time? And, fucking hell who cares you know what do they want a scene where someone comes up to bane and says oh bane you know we've got this new plane that can get to um the the prison in 30 minutes and it can take off and it, it's invisible oh yeah fine yeah put him on that with flight like, you know, do, do you really need all that or you know can you just sort of kind of um get on with the fact that it happens you don't need it spelled out to you and I, i've seen that a lot just this bloody you know, nitpicking that is just so redundant and uninteresting and oh you know how is it? No one knows that Bruce Wayne's Batman. Fucking hell, it's a comic book film, you know what I mean? It's, it's it's not taking part in the world that you know outside your front door, so just drop those expectations. But, anyway, getting slightly off track. But the critics list, I think, is it's a nice kind of counterpoint to the directors. And it's also good to, to see the similarities between the two because um, there are a few differences, of course, but there are certain films which crop up in both polls, which are you know, over and over again. And also you get those those picks from the directors which seem to be from the heart which i'll get a little bit into later but again you know who who, who am i to say that um michael mann putting avatar in his top 10 uh, who says wrong really and you know if that's his opinion that's his opinion and it certainly um you know well, as i'll talk about in a bit I, I won't i won't go too far into it now but it's always interesting just hearing a wide variety of opinion and opinion which i think is worth listening to or at least um debating and looking at a little bit more deeper okay so let's have a look at the lists themselves now i think the one thing we have to get out of the way it is in my opinion a ludicrous idea that one film can represent cinema these are polls which are conducted where the film with the most votes wins and I don't think that we can really say that just because the film that gets to number one is any way, any more or less deserving of the title of the greatest film of all time as probably about 200 other films. I think you have to take it as a pinch of salt and just enjoy these types of lists for what they are which is they are good kind of ways of discussing films which a lot of people don't talk about at the moment and you know I, I look at all the kind of the blogs and sites out there where you know it's all talking about who's going to be in Iron Man 3 and what was it the other day so, oh yeah Robert Dowry Jr had a, a had a, a slight accident on the set of Iron Man 3 you know wow 300 comments talking about you know, who fucking cares you know let's 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 dig into some kind of uh interesting film debate which is sadly and sorely missed on, a, on most of these sites and I think one of the reasons why we didn't see much kind of a hearty debate going on on kind of Facebook and blogs and things like that is because a lot of for a lot of people the films on this list are going to be foreign territory and that is really I suppose more to pity because at number 10 on the critics poll 
of the greatest films of all time is Federico Fellini's Eight and One Half. Now, for those of you who have not seen this film, I would suggest you go out and buy the Criterion Blu-ray right now. It is worth double whatever you pay for it and don't just watch it once make and make your mind up see it a few more times and i think you will simply find yourself basking in the joy of owning a film that only gets better every time you see it now Fellini is not easily digestible throwaway entertainment eight and a half is funny cryptic honest possibly pretentious but always utterly engaging it tells the story of a director called guido who is Fellini's on-screen alter ego and he makes this a semi-autobiographical piece and indeed most of his films seem to have a great deal of the man himself in them. Perhaps it was the fact that this was a film about filmmaking and has so much of Fellini in it that draws critics to it so much but kind of regardless of this it is a gem of a film. It's worth noting that it has been in and out of the top 10 since the list's inception in 1952. It first appeared in 1972's poll at number 4, 10 years later at number 5. It was omitted in 1992 and came back at number 9 in 2002. I personally think this is a film that will always... I personally think it will always be there or thereabout on the Sight and Sound top 10 list. It has an infectious quality to it and I think much like its character's dress sense, it will always be very fashionable no matter what the cinematic trend. 10 years to return in 1992 and then took another 10 years and has come back now at number 9. And that is Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which was made at the latter end of the silent era, yet even by today's standards it seems a very modern film. Shot mostly in close-ups, there is no escaping the intimacy and the tragedy of what occurs before you. Maria Falconti gives an incredible performance as Joan, and just looking to an eye she filled the torment on confliction of what she is supposed to do. I think the film sort of the fact that it was uh, even appeared in list at all is made all the more incredible because it was actually long thought lost and it was actually found complete in 1981 in a mental asylum and and it's about to continue its journey I suppose from kind of the various formats because Masters of Cinema are preparing a Blu-ray release for it and although the actual the Criterion Standard Definition DVD that I've got is also a fine transfer and it also has a new score which has been added and really kind of adds to the drama of what you are seeing it might well drop out the, uh, yeah, I suppose if, if we were to go on its past performance, it might drop out the list in another 10 years and kind of reappear again. But definitely this is an astonishing film. I know it, a lot of people who really react to it. And I, I know a few people, it's, it's their favourite film. And uh, it's not easy going. I would, it's, it's not the type of disposable kind of entertainment you might expect. Obviously, it, it being a passion piece, it's uh, very, very intense, but certainly um, it's quite gripping. I'd be very, very surprised if it wasn't a kind of a massive influence on the films of Lars von Trier. And even if it wasn't, it certainly reminded me of his type of filmmaking. But um, hopefully this Masters in the Blu-ray will be region free because certainly um, I'm really looking forward to picking that up because um, I've seen it three times now and each time uh, I found it particularly moving and you know were I to do my own list now of you know a comparable list I think this one would uh, have to be pretty high up there but 
Moving on to number eight in the list. Now, for years, the battleship Potemkin was the stalwart Russian entry. Um, it's only kind of missed out on the 1982 top ten list. But this time, it has given way to Desavertos' experimental classic, Man with a Movie Camera. And I don't think it's hard to imagine that the Stalin area was probably quite a hard place to make films in. Any kind of perceived slight would no doubt result in death. So perhaps a prudent filmmaker such as Vertov to assume narrative altogether and simply go and do, well, see what a man with a movie camera can do was a slightly more um, sensible approach to filmmaking in the Soviet Union. And the result is a quite joyous ode to cinema and especially the kind of technology and effects of cinema. Um, I've been going through a lot of early cinema at the moment, and when I say early cinema, um, from the kind of the you know, really its inception, I think the kind of the critical term for this is often referred to as primitive cinema. And lots of the films seem to be kind of the manifestations of conversation. Can we do this with the camera? Well, let's go and give it a go. You know, can we do that? Well, you know, again, let's go and see what we can do. And the Man with Move Camera seems to be made very much in the same vein of just, you know, let's see what we can do just for kind of doing its sake. And there's so many different types of film techniques and kind of technological milestones achieved in this film that it doesn't have a narrative um, to speak of, I suppose, but it's certainly it's just such a sort of interesting experiment realised on film. I, personally, I mean, I'm, I'm quite surprised it's made the list. I, I think um, I don't know whether perhaps it was the kind of the whimsical nature of the way in which critics go about it. I guess, but it just, I, and for whatever reason, it seems to have kind of come back into the consciousness to get so many votes, but. It's certainly well worth checking out. Kino have put out a very good edition of it on DVD. I believe there's a British Film Institute release of it as well, but certainly this is one to get hold of. It's only about an hour and ten minutes, and um, it's really if you're interested in documentary filmmaking as well, which which I am. I mean, it kind of reminded me um, a bit of a film like uh, Baraka, you know, just sort of a an, an experiment in non-narrative filmmaking, and. It's good because it, it doesn't sort of try and hide the fact that it is a film. You, you actually often see the uh, cameramen kind of on the back of trucks and things like that. And um, you're often doing kind of quite dangerous stuff. And it, it's I just, I suppose, a kind of a menagerie of different kind of vignettes that kind of really show off the technological and wonder of cinema. And you know, again, going back to the fact that this is a Soviet film, you always expect them to be slightly very, very serious and very, uh, you know, sort of making films about the motherland. And this isn't, I think it is a very much a kind of truly a, a, a piece of world cinema as opposed to having a kind of a, a definite geographical kind of label attached to it. You wouldn't say it was, it's Russian cinema, it feels like it's part of world cinema. Now, the next film at number seven most definitely could only be the product of the country it was made in, and it was John Ford's The Searchers. Now, I don't know really what I could say about this film, which is of any kind of, which hasn't been said before, really is kind of a kind of a, any kind of insight or of any kind of real interest. It is a classic Western, I think. Um, we often, people often look at films like Unforgiven, 
as being this film that kind of demystifies the film, uh, the, the, the genre, sorry. And I, I, I never really kind of, I was never really down with that. I think The Searchers was doing that um, way, well, decades before Clint Eastwood was. And if you look at the central character played by John Wayne, Ethan Edwards is far from the classic image of the Western protagonist. He is a racist bastard, really, who will always be on the peripheral of society. And I, I think about the... Um, the final image of that film and just the sort of the significance of it. And I don't really like making kind of hyperbolic statements about films, you know, declaring this to be the best or that to be the best. But I think for me, it has to be one of the most moving images in film history. When you kind of really think about what that means when he walks through that threshold and out into that landscape and I'm not going to kind of go too deep into the search because uh, there is a lot more to come on this film and uh, it's an episode really that I can't wait to kind of get out but um, it, it is certainly in the uh, in the pre-production stage is how we say so hopefully um, in the next few months I will be releasing a, a, a full-length searches episode because I, I, again I might not kind of um, add much to the debate about it but it's certainly one which is um, a particular favourite of mine. And talking of particular favourites, at number six is what I consider to be, from my experience of watching films, one of the most unique and incredible experiences I have ever had in watching the moving image, and that is Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's strange to me that this film only first appeared really in 1992 and I don't honestly think I could find any fault or criticism in this film at all. It is just such an incredible experience to watch it and it, I've, 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 had, I've owned it, my first kind of um, experience of it was on, I, I taped it off um, no, in fact, I bought the VHS, um, and it was full screen, would you believe? And I remember um, on Turner Classic Movies, one of the reasons why I loved that channel when I when, when we had Sky back at home was that from about 1995, I, I became aware of the difference between full screen and widescreen, and TCM used to show films in widescreen, and you would have um, the films like... Uh, Westworld, which they used to show in widescreen, and Outland and things like that. And I remember I saw 2010 in widescreen on there, and I had never seen 2001. And then it was kind of like this, um, when we came, when I was, I was looking through the listings for the cinema, I saw that 2001 was going to be, and I was so excited to see it. Um, again, in widescreen, I taped it, I sat there and I watched it, and I was like, oh my God, this film just got better. And I bought the DVD of it, which I owned for a few years, but never kind of watched. And then I went back then. I was like, oh, my God. And they had the, the aspect ratio was correct on this one. I think on the TCM version, it was um, uh, it was a little bit too uh, narrow. And then the, the DVD kind of restored it to the original aspect ratio. And my God, I was blown away again all by it. And seeing it on Blu-ray again was another kind of a way of just enjoying this film. I have never seen it projected on the big screen and I, it, if I ever get to the position where I'm incredibly rich I can buy a print of this, I will buy it and uh, watch it in my cinema because, my God, I, I, that would be, I think, the um, the epitome of 
a cinematic experience but even on a 50 inch television this film is jaw dropping and I know some people say that the, the human characters in it aren't uh, that kind of emotionally engaging but that I think they're completely missing the point the just sheer kind of intellectual ambition of it and how that was executed by Stanley Kubrick were I to to draw up my uh, top 10 lists of all time you know uh, sorry a a list of the films which I consider to be the most important of all time not you know as I said not from the uh, not from the heart and more from the head I think I think this is one of the, the rare ones which I would put on that list as being from both head and heart because it is an incredible experience um if you haven't seen it on Blu-ray and you've got a Blu-ray player and you've been kind of umming and ahhing, you can even get it part of that Stanley Kubrick box set or you can pick it up. I think I actually saw it on Amazon quite recently for like four ninety nine, and I just, you pick it up and buy it. Even if you bought it three times before on DVD, you will just be astounded by what they have done with it. And uh, one day in true Hollywood soon fashion, I guess I will do my uh, Stanley Kubrick retrospective and uh, I will hopefully go into it uh, a lot uh, in a lot more detail then but just for now this is a deserved number six i'm surprised it's not higher to be honest with you um a classic and also i think worth noting that this film was made in 1968 and it is the most modern film to appear in the top 10 um the reasons which i'll perhaps you know try and explain in a little bit but that's quite noteworthy isn't it i think that you know 1968 and you think all the kind of the films that have come and gone since you know you thought perhaps some of them would uh be be in this list but they're not and uh i think kind of how critical opinion changed you know 2001 wasn't a, a big hit on its release and i think it just shows how long it takes for certain films to digest in the kind of the public and critical consciousness but but i could literally talk about 2001 for the next millennia so i will swiftly move on to number five which is fw murnau's sunrise and Again, this is another film I've spoken about on previous episodes and the kind of the effect it had on me and how it sort of changed the way I sort of viewed and thought about cinema. I think um, it might have sort of been there because I, I think the artist have got, has got silent cinema back in the public consciousness again. And it first appeared on the um, Sight and Sound poll in 1992 in the top 10. And it's always been within the kind of the, the top 100, as it were, but... This is its first entry, uh, number five, which is the highest it's ever been. And um, it's a remarkable film. I, I think a kind of a staggering achievement, actually, once you um, you do watch it. Definitely pick up the Masters of Cinema Blu-ray edition because it's a fantastic package. I believe it's actually region free as well. And you can pick it up for about £10 off Amazon.co.uk. But again, um, there is something in the works with Sunrise, which... Um, Hopefully in autumn will become clear to you all, so uh, stay tuned anyway for more on that. Okay, and at number four, it's Jean Renoir's The Rules of the Game. Now, it's actually appeared in every single poll that Sight and Sound have conducted. Well, at least it, oh, sorry, it's got in the top ten every time of, of all the uh, Sight and Sound polls, and it's actually its lowest position at number four. And... Um, I had never seen the rules of the game until quite recently, and I went and kind of watched the Criterion Blu-ray. I actually, uh, it's another one of these ones where, when I was going, well, when I still am on my ongoing kind of Criterion obsession, I bought it ages ago, never watched it, and sat, it's, it's so sad to admit, but I actually then bought the um, the re-release on Blu-ray, so I own the DVD and the re-release on Blu-ray, and I haven't even watched either of them until a couple of weeks ago, 
when I had an absolutely god-awful day um, with a problem with my short film and I just wanted to switch off in the afternoon so I thought I'd put the rules of the game on kind of preparation for this episode and yeah absolutely love this film um it's not my favorite Renoir film I have to be brutally honest with you but it's certainly um a pretty impressive piece of work I have to be brutally honest though um for a film that has appeared on in the top 10 so many times um I can kind of I don't know if if it's perhaps it's reputation or something I was expecting something slightly more incredible um, it, 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 I, perhaps I need to go and watch it again in fact before I can sort of uh, form a kind of a, a more fuller opinion on it but I, I was a little bit surprised to be honest with you that it is it's so highly regarded it's certainly an excellent film I absolutely loved it but um, I would I would I'd be a little bit cautious about seeing its praises too much until I've seen it a few more times but the next film in the list um, is one which I have got to be honest with you. I have absolutely no appreciation for at all, and that is Yajiro, um, Sorry, and that is Yasujiro Ozo's uh, Tokyo Story, which, strangely enough, as well, this is the number one film in the director's poll. And I sat through this last year, and by God, it was a slog. I really, honestly don't see what the hype is about this film and again I think I, I might need to go back and watch it and watch a lot more of Ozu's films but I was absolutely bored to death during this film and one of the problems of these kind of sight and sound is, is I think you've sort of well, some people I'm speaking to anyway have this idea that they because these films are on there that, that means that they have to appreciate them and they have to kind of like them or at least make an attempt to honest to god I don't, I don't get what I'm, I'm meant to sort of see in this film. I, I don't see where the genius is of it. You know, where's kind of the rules of the game? I think I could, I although I, I, I think there's better Renoir films. I think there's better films in general. I, I, I could see why perhaps people like this much. This I just, I just cannot get my head around why people rate this film so highly. Is it a bad film? Well, I don't, I don't really know. It, 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 it held absolutely no interest for me at all. It looked good, no doubt about that, but um. I've only watched it once and I think I'm going to have to kind of do some kind of Ozu binge or something like that to try and kind of tune into his work. I did, when I was watching it, I did actually tweet out that I was bored to death and someone sort of tweeted me back and said, uh, kind of just stick with it and you find kind of Ozu really sort of hypnotic and uh, he becomes quite addictive. And I, I sort of tweeted back to this person and said, well, he reminds me of a bit of a, uh, a Japanese version of Mike Lee and I can't stand Mike Lee films. He's one of those, one of those directors who, if I see his name on a film it is just a total utter put off and I I do sometimes watch well actually I do go, go and watch a lot of his films when they come out on DVD just to sort of see you know, is this the one that's going to win me over and they never do and I, I, it's kind of the same with those who I've only watched a couple of his films but this was one of them and by god um, yeah I think I'm struggling there to uh, to, to see what it is I'm meant to be loving if you if you um, would like to try and help my with my re-education with those who please do get in contact and uh, point me in the way of some of these films I have got an Eclipse box set which apparently is Silent Ozu or something like that and it has sat on the shelf and has collected dust because I thought Christ this was bad enough with sound in silence I think I uh, I might really really struggle to get through this but interesting enough as well this is kind of like you know, the Japanese entry and uh, Seven Samurai has been kind of booted out. It first appeared in the top tennis in 1992, so it hasn't been around um, a great deal of time, only over the past 20 years, I guess. Um, 
and I'll be I'll be interested to um, go back to it and try and see if there is something in it. But at the moment, I've just got so many films that I haven't seen that I uh, I lack the motivation to go back and watch something that really was an absolute trek to get through. And I'm rather ashamed to admit it as well. I don't, I don't think I've ever drunk so much in two hours because I was just so bored. It seemed like um, getting drunk was a uh, preferable to uh, the absolute tedium that was before me okay so at number two and the big surprise of the 2012 poll which was that citizen kane had been dethroned to number two now kane is one of those films where it's it's almost the default greatest film ever made isn't it a lot of people will uh, stick it out there and say oh yeah this is this is the the best ever made and you go back and watch it, and I always think that when you see, you have so many people saying how good it is, you you would think that sometimes if you go back and see it, you you perhaps start to see some cracks or some flaws in it, and um, I never do. I, I, it is a constantly refreshingly brilliant film. If, if it's not Greg Tolan's deep focus cinematography, it's the incredible scripts and just the kind of the vibrancy of the direction. But I'm I, I'm going to sort of um. I don't know, perhaps if this is slightly controversial, whatever, but I still think one of the most, possibly the most impressive thing about the film is Orson Welles' performance as Charles Foster Kane. I think, you know, he was what, you know, twenty-five or something when he made this film, and he, it's he plays it with absolute um, authenticity throughout the age. And the costume change and the makeup are brilliant, and you believe this guy is an old man when he dies, and it, I, I just think it's a stunning piece of work. But it was the, uh, I suppose, the controversy this year, and it was certainly the headline grabber, I think. And uh, yeah, a lot of people are saying, you know, Citizen Kane has been, you know, kind of knocked off the top spot, and there were people up in arms about it, you know. Oh my God! Well, you know, let's go back to the the whole thing. This is just opinion, and you know, it was just, it just ha- didn't get as many votes as the number one film, which was Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And Vertigo didn't appear in any of the lists until 1982, and I will say it right now, it certainly isn't my favourite Hitchcock film. And I went back and watched it again in preparation for this. And I do think it is a quite extraordinary, at times, film. It's so dark, really, and very, very bleak uh, piece of work. And I was wondering, perhaps, if... Was that the reason, perhaps, it kind of has has come back in vogue? Is it because it's the slightly kind of more um, darker and... I suppose depressing effort. You know, these are these are dark and dis- depressing times. I suppose for a lot of people. Certainly, you know, if you watch the news, you'd think the world was ending. So I don't know if that's kind of influenced the critics. But watching it again, I was kind of reminded that um, Vertigo is an absolutely ridiculous film. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was well aware of what he was doing. You know, a lot of people when they watch. Hitchcock films, they'll see a shot which is blatantly fake and they'll kind of jump up and down and go, God, it looks so stupid. Well, Hitchcock knew it did. It was all about, you know, it was part of his game he was playing with the audience. He wanted you to sort of see the artifice of what he was doing. And in a way, it was a kind of a bit of a joke on you because, you know, you, you'd see something that was blatantly fake, yet you would feel very real emotions, especially in the kind of case of Psycho and stuff like that. But the central story of Vertigo is absolutely, it's, it's total bullshit. You have a, you know, a character called Scotty played by uh, Jimmy Stewart and he, he's a kind of retired police officer and he had to leave the force because um, he let a, a colleague of his 
fall to his death because of his vertigo. So he leaves the force and the guy's best friend gets him to follow around his wife. And essentially you're supposed to believe that uh, his best friend is actually trying to kill his wife because Scotty's vertigo will stop him from running up a bell tower where we will see uh, her body fall from. And it's all part of a rather convoluted murder plot, which I won't go too far into. But, I mean, it's it's a, it's a stupid film. It's utterly ridiculous. The story seems almost kind of secondary to the, the kind of the mood and atmosphere. And it's not even, you know, like I said, it's not even my favourite Hitchcock film that would have to go to shadow of a doubt. And, you know, is it the fact that... You know, are we saying that kind of Hitchcock is the greatest filmmaker of all time? Certainly, that's what the critics would have us believe in the uh, poll they did. Because I sorry, I forgot to actually mention that um, there's the critics do a poll of their greatest films, and they also do the same for directors. And Alfred Hitchcock is at the top of that pile. So, you know, are they saying this is the best Hitchcock film? I don't think it's the best Hitchcock film. That would have to be shadow of a doubt for me. But, you know, if if for this, you know, in another 10 years, you know, perhaps Vertigo might kind of slip down the rankings again. I don't know. I personally think it's a film that is in there um, as a bit of a whim, really. I think people sort of thought this year that you'd be a little bit more original and kind of revisit Vertigo and have kind of bigged it up a little bit. I'd be very surprised if that in another 10 years, this is number one. So that is the critics top 10 list there are a hundred films in total um that you know i just to kind of make a few points this i suppose the most recent film that has uh made this was uh one car ways in the mood for love which was joint 24th and um that was followed by number 28 which was maholland drive uh, david lynch's film that was made in 2001 um i think it's a if you look at the films on the top 100 list I think it's a, some of them are fairly predictable, to be honest with you. Um, La Ventura, which is one of my favourites, you know, that's um, slipped down the rankings a bit. Uh, Apocalypse Now coming in at, um, at number fourteen. I, I would be, I, I my, if I was to kind of tip a film to kind of break that top ten in another ten years, I think Apocalypse Now will because um, that gets better every time I see it. Actually, and I, I think I'm slightly more in awe of it. Uh, on each viewing and I, I, I certainly think it might be getting a uh, I mean it's praise to the high heavens at the moment but I think it's going to get a further kind of critical um, adulation heaped on it and I, I would be I would be quite interested to see where it ends up on the next one but you know there's the usuals um, Singing in the Rain that one seems to have fallen out of a favour a little bit Singing in the Rain as well I mean that's that it's at number 20 at the moment but um that's a film as well where I, I really do enjoy it, but I, I think it's a fairly empty film in many respects. It reminds me a lot of kind of, um, you know, the modern blockbuster, really, kind of very kind of flimsy stories wrapped around these kind of joyous set pieces. But it always seems to kind of be a, something of a critical darling. And I suppose really the underlying thing about the, the whole list is that for every film that's on it... Um, and I suppose the whole thing about that top 100 is I could think of, you know, lots of the films I completely agree with, and there's quite a few which I think I could quite happily find an alternate for. Certainly the top 10, I mean, with the exception, I suppose, of 2001 and Sunrise, I think I could, well, I suppose also Citizen Kane, but I, th I think for the others I could, 
legitimately say there are other films which I think are a lot better. And of course, it is all just opinion. I mean, this this is a this list is worked out on a votes basis. So who knows? You know, next time they might kind of widen the poll a bit, and uh, you know, it could conceivably change. But it's an interesting one. I think I, I you know I do um, kind of very much advocate people having a look at it and uh, you know ticking off the ones they've seen and the ones they haven't there's a few on it that I I haven't seen and I'll, you know I will be kind of checking them out in the near future in case you're interested the I will run through the critics list of the top 25 directors and we have at number one Alfred Hitchcock number two Jean-Luc Godard three Orson Welles four Yasujiro Ozu five Jean Renoir Six John Ford and actually joint six as well. Sorry, Carl Theodore Dreyer. Eight Stanley Kubrick. Nine Andre Tarkovsky. Ten Robert Bresson. Eleven Francis Ford Coppola. Twelve Ingmar Berman. Thirteen F. W. Murnau. Fourteen Federico Fellini. Fifteen Akira Kurosawa. Sixteen Louis Bunuel. Seventeen Michelangelo Antonioni. Eighteen Charles Chaplin. Nineteen Martin Scorsese. Twenty David Lynch. 21, Fritz Lang, 22, Sergei Einstein, 23, Mizuguri Kenji, 24, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, and 25, Roberto Rossellini. I'm a little bit surprised there's no um, Jean-Pierre Melville in there. Um, I, well, I mean, I, I don't know, that's just one of my, you know, personal opinions. Would I kind of put him in over someone like Ozu? I think I probably would at the moment until I see more of kind of Ozu films, but I think that list, you can't really kind of uh, argue with it that much. I was talking to someone the other day and they were kind of saying, you know, I couldn't believe that Steven Spielberg um, wasn't on the list. Well, I, you know, I'm not to be honest with you and don't sort of mistake that for being kind of sight and sound elitism. I just think, um, you know, there's a lot better filmmakers out there than Steven Spielberg. I think, uh, you know, was I, would I write down my top probably 50 directors of all time? I don't think Steven Spielberg would make the list. I have to be brutally honest. So uh, it doesn't really surprise me. But um, again, you know, these are just opinions and then you know, uh, votes that are counted up. But in summary, I think the critics list is it's fairly predictable. I don't think there's anything in it which is too controversial or too unexpected. Um, and it's a shame, I think, that perhaps people haven't kind of delved into it. And, you know, I wasn't surprised really that you know kind of it didn't spark much debate on Facebook or anything like that. But I still think I was a little bit disappointed because I would have liked to have kind of um, delved a little bit deeper in it. Okay, and I will move briefly on to the director's list. And certainly there's a few films that cross over, but I think this one would probably be uh, slightly more popular with people. At number 10, there's The Bicycle Thieves. At number 9, Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror. At joint number 7, there is The Godfather and Vertigo. At number 6, Apocalypse Now. At number 5, Taxi Driver. At number 4, Eight and a Half. Joint second, 2001 A Space Odyssey and Citizen Kane. And number one, Tokyo Story. Again, why Tokyo Story? What is it about this film? I, you know, I, 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 I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to get too hit up, to be honest with you about it. But again, I really do not see what the hype is. But the top 10 directors, directors were number 10, Orson Welles. Number nine, Akira Kurosawa. Number eight, Alfred Hitchcock. Number seven, Martin Scorsese. Number six, Jean-Luc Godard. Number five, Andre Tarkovsky. Joint third, Ingmar Bourbon and Francis Ford Coppola. Number two, Stanley Kubrick. And number one, Federico Fellini. Now, just about these kind of directors' lists, they are really good because they've uh, they've got loads of famous people in there. I mean, got Woody Allen's list, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, Kenneth Branagh. 
And there's a few, you know, you sort of, I, I was a little bit surprised, but the one that really got me, I guess, was Michael Mann. And he had on his list, uh, top 10, Avatar. And that kind of really surprised me because I sort of, I began to sort of think, you know, God, you know what, um, why Avatar? And it wasn't because, I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of Avatar. Um, I, I think it's certainly quite enjoyable, but you know, for someone like Michael Mann to kind of say it's his, you know, one of his favourite films of all time, it sort of makes me want to go back and have a look. And I'm not sort of saying that, you know, I'm instantly swayed by someone's opinion, but I think, you know, this is where these types of lists I think really do kind of open can of worms because, okay, have a think about Singing in the Rain and how critically adored that film is, and then have a think about Avatar, you know. Is Singing in the Rain really that much better than Avatar? I don't, I, and, you know, I, I don't know that it is. I think you could kind of debate the merits of both. They're both very entertaining. They're both kind of visual popcorn. Does Singing in the Rain really kind of, does it make any kind of deep statements or anything like that? Or is it just an aesthetically pleasing kind of fun hour and a half? Likewise, is Avatar, does it, but it tries to make some kind of uh, deeper, meaningful statements, I suppose. It's one of the reasons why I find it particularly uh, puke-inducing, I suppose. But, you know... You, they both set out to entertain, and I think they both do that. It, you know, is one so much better than the other? I, you know, I, I don't really know, but definitely, I mean, there's a there's a massive um, variety of directors in there. And you, I, I think, kind of like Quentin Tarantino's, uh, I particularly enjoyed because uh, it was as every bit as um, fanboy as you would like. I mean, he had the good, the bad, and the ugly. Apocalypse Now's uh, the bad news bears. Carrie, Dazed and Confused, The Great Escape, His Girl Friday, Jaws, Pretty Maids All in a Row, Rolling Thunder, Sorcerer and Taxi Driver. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, if you watch any of these films, you certainly um, will see the influence of those on there. Really glad as well that Sorcerer is getting a little bit of love because I think that's a fantastic remake. And uh, you can always listen to the 24 Frames cast episode on that. I did, I think it was last year, but... Um, all in all, it's a fantastically good read uh, this month's edition and I think we have to not perhaps say it is a definitive lift in any way. It's not the most important kind of poll undertaken, but I think overall what it does is it keeps films which don't get the love and the praise that they deserve anymore in the public eye. And it, you know, I think the true mark of a film of longevity is you know are people still talking about it 60 years down the line and hopefully films you know by directors like Andrei Tarkovsky and Jean Wenrard and Luke Bresson I think they will always find an audience but I, I, I unfortunately I think their kind of exposure will diminish over the years unless of course you know people like Sight and Sound keep doing these lists and kind of keep keeping their out there in the public consciousness. There's enough podcasts and blogs and websites dedicated to modern cinema. You know, who who's going to be in the Avengers 2? Is Joss Whedon going to come back? And yeah, you know, it's all fun seeing pictures from the set and things like that. But it is just basically, I find it a lot of kind of times, it's just baiting for more page views and it's quite tedious to an extent and um, it only happens once every decade this list and I think it's certainly something which uh, hopefully will keep the flag flying for the diversity of cinema and you know just in sight and sound in general as I've said before it's well worth picking up it you know it's not really an expensive um, 
magazine to subscribe to and I th certainly think if you are interested in cinema there will be a lot in there to get into. Mr Burroughs, I'm afraid I bring sad tidings. Your uncle's passing came as a shock to all of us. save us. Hollywood is littered with films that, through the reputation of being a box office disaster, are forever kind of referred to in derogatory terms. And I think it's a kind of a tragic part of film and film appreciation that people tend to equate the success of a film with its quality and the fallacy of thinking like that is really all too obvious. I mean, take a look at a film like The Shawshank Redemption, which was, well, didn't, well I don't know if it was a, a massive box office flop upon its release, but certainly it was a film that was largely ignored at the theatres and has since become, and rightly so, one of the most beloved Hollywood films of all time. You can look at other examples, like things like It's a Wonderful Life, and certainly there are films such as Heaven's Gate that come out, which in that instance bankrupted United Artists, the studio. And I think it certainly is a film which I wouldn't say I loved, but I don't think it deserves the sort of um, derision that a lot of people seem to have for it. I think when you do watch it, there is undeniably it's a very beautiful film. I certainly think that it lacks in certain departments such as character. But by the by, I still think it's a pretty good film and I... Uh, I do enjoy watching it quite a lot, but there seems to be a kind of mob mentality sometimes when it comes to pissing and shitting all over a film. And unfortunately, I find it quite hard to muster the strength sometimes to offer rebuttals to people who have clearly never seen the film in question yet jump on the bandwagon of trashing it. And it happened again this year in the case of John Carter. Now, I appreciate it's been many months since, well, in fact, I say many months, it's only been six months since the film came out and it has recently been um, put out on Blu-ray. And I didn't see John Carter at the cinema, but 
I knew really as soon as people were absolutely trashing it and destroying it, both sort of audiences and critics seemed to delight in talking about what a disaster the film was. And indeed, when you have a film that has a budget of $250 million and its worldwide return is only $282 million, it's not hard to see that the film, although certainly not one of the biggest flops of all time, certainly has not performed as its parent studio, Walt Disney, would have liked. Now, unfortunately, one of the other things that has happened this year is we've had films like The Avengers and The Dark Knight, which have done incredibly well. And of course, what then happens is, I think it's fairly safe to say that The Avengers was a film that was kind of universally liked by most people who saw it. And what happens is people will look at that and say, well, that's made over a billion and a half dollars. And John Carter's only made $282 million and the press are telling me it's a flop. Therefore, The Avengers is vastly better than John Carter. And we live in the age of the hipster critic, don't we, where we have to kind of have these kind of sneering remarks about films which they have never seen yet just feel it's okay to shit on and one of the things about John Carter is that it does provide those types of people with a lot of ammunition not to like it. It has uh, Taylor Kitsch in the lead role of John Carter, a kind of a hunky looking guy you know so everyone can kind of jump on the uh, hunk with no brains bandwagon. It has a pretty girl in the by the name of Lynn Collins in one of the lead roles who's just there to look scantily clad and you have a kind of selection of the normal typical bad guys Mark Strong, Dominic West and as soon as the film starts doing badly everyone can talk about how stupid it looks and of course you have I, one of the things that I did hear a lot of people say was that it just looks like one of the Star Wars prequels and yada 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 but you can pretty much guarantee that those people haven't seen the film at all and really have no point of which to make other than the fact that they are ignorant bandwagon jumpers. And I knew as soon as everyone was slagging it off that there's no way John Carter could be as bad as everyone was making out. I think the the real kind of crux of the problem with John Carter is was its marketing, because I, I know absolutely nothing about the source material of these. It was completely new to me. And the name just seemed a bit banal, um, you know, John Carter, it's, you know, it's all very Anglo-Saxon, but it doesn't really kind of tell me much about what the film's going to be out. And then I sort of see a kind of a Civil War soldier in one scene, and the next thing he's supposedly on Mars, which just looked to me a lot like Arizona. And I didn't really understand what it was about, but I certainly didn't start leaping to conclusions that John Carter was going to be a crap film or anything like that. And I'm quite glad now that um, I've actually got to see it, because... I can sort of, I suppose, with some degree of authority or indeed some sense of justification wade into debate about its apparent quality. And here is the thing about John Carter. It is a perfectly good film. Not without its flaws, but certainly, I think, as a kind of a slice of big fun entertainment goes, John Carter does get a lot of things right. Now let's just kind of quickly talk about the story. Well John Carter is a former Confederate soldier who is on a, a kind of a a mission to find some gold somewhere in a mine and he is a kind of a rebel who doesn't want to kind of be a part of any kind of um, government army or align himself with anyone. He very much 
works on his own. And one day he is pursued by some Indians after an altercation in a bar and he ends up in a cave that the Indians decide they are too scared to go near and there's some flashing of blue lights and the next thing we know he is on Mars and of course Mars is nothing like the Mars we know it to be. You can breathe oxygen, there are vast civilizations on it, some kind of human looking guys who, this is one of the flaws actually of the film, um, they look like they've been on tanning beds for slightly too long. There's a native race of aliens called the Thark and through various convoluted and um, I don't really want to, I suppose convoluted is the wrong word in that. The reason why I'm not going to elaborate too much on is the fact that I don't really want to kind of ruin the story because I really would kind of recommend uh, watching John Carter as opposed to letting yourself be swayed by what other people say about it. And essentially John Carter can do all manner of things on Mars that he can't do on Earth because of the atmosphere. He's able to leap vast distances which instantly uh, wins him the affections of the Thark. And he also wades in on a civil war that is actually taking part on Mars and falls in love with the princess of the good guys called Dejah Thoris. And she has been promised to be married to a chap called Sab Than, who is from a the tribe called the Jeddak. And the point of this union is to bring about peace on Mars, although, of course, Jeddak is an absolute shitbag and is actually being controlled by some mysterious aliens who are on a collision course with Earth to do the same to Mars, what they have done to other planets all over the solar system. And of course, there are epic battles that ensue. So from the description that I've given, you might want to do a kind of, I suppose, a bit of a movie maths and you might come up with Avatar plus Dune plus Thor plus the Chronicles of Riddick. Plus, I suppose, um, a fair dose from the prequels of Star Wars. And you probably much get what John Carter is really like. And for me, at least, that combination of science fiction elements made for a very entertaining, if eye-rollingly familiar, storyline. Its biggest enemy, I think, John Carter, is that we live in the kind of the post-Avatar world and although a lot of people enjoyed Avatar and I would say that I enjoyed Avatar, I don't necessarily like it particularly but it it was one of those films where as soon as it began within five minutes I think I kind of was able to quite accurately work out what was going to happen and one of the kind of the, the kind of the backlash against Avatar was that you have this kind of I suppose, white Caucasian guy who goes into an alien culture and becomes the best. He becomes the one who is able to teach them all these things that they've never been able to do themselves. He's the one who's able to unite them and the one who's able to lead them. And a lot of people kind of jumped on that and were quite uh, negative. Well, I don't say negative, but they were certainly um, used that as one of the biggest sticking points of Avatar. And unfortunately, it is exactly the same thing that happens in John Carter. Indeed, if you, I suppose if you would compare the narrative elements of both this and Avatar, there would be a lot in common. And I think it's kind of, Avatar's a film that's too, it's still in the collective conscience a little too much. It's become, a, I suppose, a kind of a pop culture phenomenon. And 
as such, when you have a film like John Carter, which is so reminiscent of that, and I, I think, again, this could be part of the kind of Disney's um, poor marketing of the film, because I just thought, thought when I looked at it, well, I've already seen this film before, a couple of years ago, and I wasn't overly keen on that. Well, I would say I wasn't jumping for joy at that, and you know, do I really want to kind of go back and experience something like that? Again, the answer was no, but I would contest, and I think... Uh, there might be a, a slight kind of degree of controversy in this, but I actually think I enjoyed the look and the world of John Carter more than I did Avatar. Pandora was um, just looked like a big CGI jungle, and John Carter looks like a big CGI desert. But for some reason, I I think I kind of enjoyed the sparseness and the, uh, the sort of the epic scale of John Carpenter a little bit more than I did Avatar. And of course, I'm not just kind of comparing the films, you know, like for like but it had its moments where genuinely you could kind of see so far off into the horizon i know a lot of it was filmed um, on location in america and they kind of like you know cgi spruced it up and i don't know if it was just that, that kind of those those the the essence of reality about it that made it slightly more kind of believable and indeed allowed me to kind of get into the world a lot more it is at times as well, I I think perhaps its other problem is that John Carter is it's quite a bloody film in that we do the blood isn't uh, red it's uh, blue as such but it's quite violent and it does have some moments of darkness on and I think a lot of people were confused as to who the film was aimed at and I suppose my um, who I would say the target audience were certainly isn't kind of children which this being Disney. As well, you would kind of expect it to have that uh, demograph in its target. But I, I really don't think it is. I think it is a slightly more kind of adult or at least young adult market. And when, of course, you have that market being kind of saturated with hipster criticism, unfortunately, um, you will find that your box office suffers as it did here. And this is director Andrew Stanton who did the excellent kind of Wally and Finding Nemo. This was his first live action feature. And I think he really kind of has benefited from having this background in animation because for such a CGI heavy film, I thought it was incredibly well directed. And to kind of invoke the Star Wars prequels, which I found the direction to be incredibly flat and dull a lot of the time for such in films of such incredible vision and kind of, CGI beauty they are at times crushingly dull I think and John Carter I never got that from I, I thought it really kind of flowed very well it was at times quite subtle and at times where it needed to be huge and massive as you'd expect from a science fiction epic and there was a brilliant kind of cost cutting sequence between John Carter on Mars and to his life on Earth and I won't kind of ruin what he was actually doing but I really kind of felt that it was a kind of a pretty brave kind of way of juxtaposing images and it certainly again I think elevated it just from being kind of mild kiddie fare to something a little bit more profound that being said I do think it's a film that children will really enjoy and I think it's one where um, it's certainly going to be found by future generations I believe I think it's a classic case of a film which once you kind of can separate it from the time in which it was made and people stop relating it to films that have come out in the recent past 
I think it will kind of find its feet a little bit and become something in its own right. But it does have a few flaws. Um, Dominic West, who plays kind of the main bad guy, I kind of feel a bit sorry for Dominic West because I, I think he is um, struggling to find decent parts in the post-wire world. And I think one of those reasons might be is that he doesn't quite have the leading man potential that a lot of his peers do. And as such, he's kind of being sidelined into fairly dull, boring roles. And certainly this one, it's a classic case of a villain who has nothing other than the vitriol that they spill. Story-wise too, this is a film that I've I've actually seen quite recently as well when I watched I rewatched David Lynch's Dune. And at no stage at all did I honestly think that there was going to be anything other than the conclusion that we got to it. But that being said, as I've um, mentioned before on episodes that I don't mind being told a story or being taken on a journey that is quite familiar. To me, it's in the execution. And I think Andrew Stanton's execution, although this is no kind of groundbreaking um, work of art, I certainly think it's a very competently made and very entertainingly made story. The aforementioned Taylor Kitsch as well, I think does a pretty good job as John Carter. And I think this is one of the things I do kind of admire about it, that they haven't tried to um, have stars in every single role. Because I, I get, it doesn't need to have a big A-list Hollywood name in it. I think the uh, the concept and the environment are enough, really. Or really should have been enough to get people in, because... As a visual spectacle, this pretty much delivers as how you would expect. I do think because of such a heavy use of CGI, it will probably, on visual appearances, not age that well. It was quite strange, actually, because I went to the re-release of Titanic and in, in 3D. And I remember when I first saw that film being blown away, being blown away by the effects and seeing them again, they really do not look good. And although obviously the kind of the overall quality of effects has improved, uh, it still looks fake. You know, there's nothing about there's nothing they can do really to make them look 100 uh, percent lifelike. And I, I wonder perhaps in um, a few years time or you know something like 20 years time or something like that, people go back and see John Carter and uh, say it has aged. But hopefully in that time, it's kind of critical and audience appreciation would have increased because. Again, I, it's such a shame that this film was kind of lambasted in the way it was. And it really disappoints me when I read comments on Facebook by people who, you know, they, they, they seem to think it's funny somehow or they, they, they think it's like it's it's OK to kind of sneer and kind of laugh at the people who made it for, for the fact that it hasn't done very good business. The artistry alone in the effects is so, uh, you know, just the kind of the... That, you know, you think about the technicians who put all this effort into the film, and you know it's not their fault that it's been marketed badly. And you know, Andrew Stanford, like I said, he's done a pretty—I think he's done a decent job with this. And hopefully, you know, it won't be the last time he ever makes a live-action film. You know, he certainly put a lot into it. The actors seem to have—they um, well, seem to be enjoying themselves. You know, it's certainly not bad acting. I don't think. You know, Taylor Kitsch—he is—I you know, suppose he's a fairly typical, good-looking, B-list Hollywood actor, but. You know, I, I don't think it's kind of right to kind of point and sneer, especially when you haven't seen the film. And again, you know, if this was a Brett Ratner film, which 
if it was a Brett Ratner film, it certainly wouldn't uh, be as good as it is. You know, perhaps then you know, we can all have a bit of a kind of a sneer and a laugh, even if you haven't seen it. Because let's be honest with you, I think it's kind of genuinely accepted that it's okay not to like him. And you know, people like uh, Michael Bay, but you know, obviously I'm, I'm making assumptions based on their directorial ability, not as the people. Although I have heard in certain circles that both kind of uh, Brett Ratner and Michael Bay are pricks of the highest order. But overall, I think that John Carter is a film which... If you haven't seen it, don't pass judgment on it. And I'm not kind of saying it's one of the best films I've seen this year. I'm not. I. 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 I, you know, I, I would. It wouldn't get anywhere near my top ten for this year. But if you just want to kind of kick back for a couple of hours and watch a film which is very entertaining, looks incredible on Blu-ray and sounds incredible as well. It's um, one of the uh, one of the things I do like about kind of Disney and. Um, blu-rays is that they do a lot of them they do utilize 7.1 surround sound and i've got a 7.1 setup and it's nice when you have one of those mixes and they've really used all the speakers and it's a really envelope uh, enveloping sorry uh experience and when the kind of the film looks so good as well it's hard really to find fault in the fact that you don't go into it expecting it to be a kind of epic um, dissertation on the loneliness of man or anything like that it's just a big slice of fun and I certainly enjoyed myself watching it quite immensely and I, I you know if you go into it of the mindset that you're going to be what expecting a two-hour dissertation on uh, man's eternal struggle against depression then I should imagine that John Carter isn't the film for you however if you want to kick back and enjoy a well-directed good fun action science fiction romp then i i think um you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things to enjoy about it um i did not and i will not uh check out the 3d blu-ray that came out of it because um it was one of those unfortunate um films which is post converted into 3d and again i think that might have been one of the things about it that kind of hurt it because slagging off post converted 3d films is another kind of sport which is emerging at the moment and um, I don't understand it at all because people moan about the fact that they've paid extra to watch a darker version of the film and in the, the 3D shit and it's been post-converted. Well, how about this for a kind of a, a an idea? And it, you know, it's, it's quite a radical one and I dare say you might take quite a bit of thought. Don't go and watch the 3D version. Why don't you just go and watch the standard version where it will be bright and there won't be any crappy 3D upgrading for you to kind of contend with. Because if you don't like them, which most people seem not to like post-converted 3D, I've never actually seen a film that's been post-converted in 3D, I don't think I ever will either. But I certainly wouldn't go out, buy the 3D Blu-ray of John Carter and sit here moaning, going, oh, the 3D was crap and it wasn't bright enough. Because... You know, I've made a conscious decision to purchase something which I know I've got a pretty good chance I'm not going to enjoy. So, again, it's the hipster criticism thing that's just kind of, it's just boring and depressing. But do check it out. And um, if you have seen John Carter, please let me know and tell me what you think about it. Because I'm quite interested to um, garner some more feedback on this film and have kind of discourse with people who have seen it. And... You know, even if you absolutely hate it, you know, let me know because I would certainly like to hear from you.
Okay, so on to this month's featured review and I will be taking a look at Marcus Schleinzer's film, Michael. Now, there is one thing I need to get out of the way very, very quickly and this film will probably turn a lot of people off just on the basis of its concept which is the titular character, Michael, is a 30-something uh, office employee he appears to work at an insurance company bit of a social um, misfit he's not kind of he's not particularly weird he's just quite introverted he, he does have friends um, but he's not really sort of the life and soul of the party and Michael has a little secret at home which is the fact that he has a young boy called Wolfgang who he has imprisoned in the basement of his house uh, and he father's Wolfgang he does cares for his every need he also rapes him most nights and although you don't ever kind of see anything too horrific you do see the aftermath and I think this that alone might be enough for people to say that this film isn't for them but I would certainly recommend checking it out because away from all that I think Michael is one of the most surprising films I've seen in a long while now it's also when you're kind of talking about subjects like this you always have to be slightly careful uh, kind of like about what you say for fear of it being misinterpreted the lead character is played by Michael Fuf who somehow manages to inject a humanity into the character that you wouldn't think one the filmmakers would be interested in doing but two you'd actually think possible because you will actually well certainly I found this film it, it, it wasn't afraid to make him not so much sympathetic but it was certainly didn't go to extreme length to show him as a monster and he is a monster this is a pure evil piece of shit person human being you know I, I, I don't advocate the death penalty I think it's disgusting but you know certainly for things like this it, it kind of even pushes my uh, I suppose tolerance for not having kind of wishing it on people like Michael but the, the two the relationship that he has with Wolfgang it is this kind of father figure brother and also abuser and you sort of see them interacting in a way which you sort of you, you sometimes almost forget the horrendousness of the situation because it's obviously based on um, the case of the Natasha Kumpuch case who was a girl who was kidnapped when she was 10 I think she was held for something like 3,000 odd days and one of the things that she used to kind of talk about was that her and the guy that captured her 
they would kind of like bicker and have arguments and they did it on occasion even kind of leave her the house and go out and about and Michael Wolfgang you know he does he does take him out to kind of like the zoo and stuff like that and but every night he just kind of you know he will just leave him downstairs in the basement with some food and basically Wolfgang just has to kind of entertain himself watching television because over the course of the film as well you kind of experience uh, a sort of a, a variety of emotions at times the tension is absolutely unbearable uh, Michael promises Wolfgang he will get him another boy to kind of keep him company and uh, I won't kind of ruin it or spoil it what happens but it's kind of like on the edge of your seat and likewise a kind of um, a girl Michael works with uh, suddenly appears at his house one day and you're sat there thinking Jesus Christ you know what is he going to do next I mean you haven't seen the kind of the girl with the dragon tattoo you you sort of um, you run through all kinds of uh, possibilities in your head but on the other side you know, there's a bit where Michael goes away with a couple of friends and skiing and he's just absolutely utterly inept at it and I, I was quite I was laughing out loud at him and I'm sort of thinking god you know how is it I'm watching a film about a paedophile who keeps a boy locked in a basement and it still is making me laugh and you know, it, it is there to it's, you know these scenes are not there kind of on whimsy they are designed you know to for amusement's sake and you, you sort of sit there thinking to yourself Christ you know is there something wrong with me but then I guess you sort of when you kind of look at the case of that Natasha Kumpach case where you sort of think you know she, she spoke about the kind of the normality of her ordeal and how you know it was kind of very regimented that sit around eating doing the washing up watching television together and in a way I guess when you know, it would become a kind of a perverse normal for both kind of parties for both the kind of the, the victim and the perpetrator and the way the film is shot as well it's this is the first film I've seen by Stosner and he kind of like and as I understand he's actually um, a kind of a proche of Michael Haneke and I could see the similarities between the two and the visual style it's quite detached in the scenes there's not much kind of camera movement in there very kind of static compositions and I know a lot of people will say it. Well, you know, it's a very cold film, and to an extent, it is. You do you you find yourself feeling as if you're just this sort of observer of the action, and it's kind of um, playing out in a way which, when the kind of the shocking things do happen, they seem completely normal. Which, again, is a very very bizarre way. Well, not suppose bizarre way, but a very daring way of making a film. There's a moment where Michael one night is watching a horror film and he decides to reenact a scene at the dinner table from the from what he's seen. And there's a scene in particular where one night Michael is watching a horror film and one of the lines in the film is, um, what do you want me to stick in you, my penis or this knife? And the next night, Michael at the dinner table tries to reenact this. And he just suddenly stands up, gets his dick out and then holding a knife says to Wolfgang, which one of these do you want me to stick in you? And the kid just doesn't even look up from the from his plate and just says, oh, you know, the knife or what have you. And then Michael just sort of like nonchalantly sits back down again. And then you, there's the, Schlozer doesn't try and you know, hype up the tension. He doesn't even sort of make it out that the threat is in any way real. It's just this totally sort of detached observational style where that in itself just you know what he's saying you know and the fact that he actually gets his dick out on screen just sat there thinking my god this is absolutely awful and disgusting yet 
it also in the situation, the way in which Wolfgang behaves, it appears to be a kind of a fairly normal occurrence. And then you start to think about the whole perversity of the situation again. And it, it, it sort of plays with your head in a really bizarre way. But the ending of the film as well, I, I think it builds towards a, um, a conclusion that a lot of people might not like um, for a variety of reasons. And obviously, I think we were all kind of very much appalled by paedophiles and you know, rightly so. You know, they are a particularly kind of disgusting breed of human. But it does leave a few things open. And I think it was a very kind of brave decision to go in the direction it does because Michael is doesn't behave like a monster he beha- he is a monster by virtue of his actions and the scary thing about it is is that you, you watch something like you know anything with kind of the Hannibal Lecter films and you sort of you wonder how the fucking hell anyone you know who works with those types of people wouldn't be able to kind of put two and two together and with Michael you know he's like I said he's a little bit of an oddball but um he certainly, you know, he fits in at his office, you know, he, he, he is liked, people do, you know, come and talk to him and things like that, and it just sort of, it, it's unsettling, um, because I think there's a case where, um, it's quite personal to me, in fact, where my father actually found out that a guy that worked for him um, was actually wanted for murder a few years after he'd left the company, and everyone at, uh, my dad's office was saying, you know, that they would never ever have suspected this guy. And certainly when I was watching it, I was I was reminded of that instant. It's not the type of film where I'd say it is um, a kind of a, a Saturday night's entertainment. But it is, bizarrely enough, it's a very um, entertaining film to an extent. It does have those moments of tension and will kind of grip you as to what is going to happen next. And I, I you going back to kind of the direction of it it isn't hyperbolic it isn't uh in your face it just allows the situations to unfold before you and you just you know the i suppose the drama that comes from those scenes is very much something that you bring to it as opposed to the film trying to kind of falsely impose on you definitely this is a piece of cinema which will greatly offend a lot of people and it you know like i said i think the concept is enough for people some people just to go no but but certainly if you can kind of get over the initial kind of um doubts you might have about watching michael it is certainly a very rewarding film once you get to the end okay so that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast um next week hopefully there should be the criteria roundup for june and july and then it might be that the uh, podcast has to go on a little bit of a hiatus until late September, early October, purely on the basis that um, in about a month I will be making this short film and it is really starting to take over my life now. There's so much to do. Um, just to kind of give you a little bit of an insight into it, you know, we've kind of done all the castings, all the locations, but I'm having to negotiate with a few of the places where we're filming, getting all the health and safety stuff sorted out. The bloody insurance is an absolute fucking nightmare. Um, you know, there's only a crew of about 12 people, but getting everyone organised and kind of at the right places. And, you know, it's everything when you're at this level. You know, where are people going to park? Where's the nearest toilet and whatnot? Fucking hell, you know, if I have any time to look at the script, it's about one o'clock in the morning. So, it, you know, the, it, 
quite frankly at the moment you know just kind of the, the whole podcasting a lot of a great distraction although it is i think um i'll be quite surprised if i get anything out for, for at least four or five weeks after this uh, sorry after the credits here an episode comes out but the thing i would say is that there are a lot of episodes which i've recorded and i'm in the process of editing i really want to kind of go back to kind of um you know putting more music and clips in and stuff like that and although it does kind of prolong the amount of time you have to spend uh, on the post-production side of things it's certainly i, I it's the direction I want to go in more, and you know, I, I know um, certainly the sound quality of things. I have bought a new microphone. I'm going to buy a stand so I can sort of kind of get the the sound quality up a little bit more, and uh, just take a little bit more time and care over the kind of the longer episodes. But just to give you kind of some kind of idea of what's coming up, um, the Ridley Scott retrospective part three is is well and truly being worked on. Um, most of it's been recorded. I'm just obviously said I'm kind of going through the clips and everything like that. Um, I've kind of somehow by accident ended up also doing a Terence Malick retrospective I was going to do a one on David Lean but somehow this is sort of uh, came about I was watching loads of films in preparation for doing my short sorry loads of Terence Malick films in, in preparation for doing my short and I suddenly just started writing down a few things about them and these sort of turned into kind of the basis of episodes so there'll be something on Terence Malick also um, there will be something on the work of Jacques Tati as well and again this was another one where I wanted to do a close-up episode on Playtime and I sort of thought, God, you know, Jack Tatty, that's someone who doesn't really get kind of much uh, podcast airtime. So I thought we, in preparation for the Playtime episode, I would just do kind of a run through of his filmography. And wouldn't you know, I'm, I'm sat there watching um, sort of uh, his films, writing down notes. And suddenly these kind of like little recaps of his career sort of became like 20, 30 minutes. So my, my Playtime episode might be uh, a lot longer than the normal sort of 30 to 40 minutes for a close up episode. Um, I'm also will continue with the Bond uh, retrospective. I will power things through that. There's also going to be another um, exclusive going up on that page, which is a season by season kind of uh, thoughts and opinions on the Babylon Five series. Now I know that um, it's one of those series Babylon Fives where if you kind of just click, if you're just flicking through channels and you suddenly saw it, you'd think, "Oh my God, how shit and dated does that look?" But I've just finished the first series, and I bought I bought the into every single episode of Babylon Five from um, there's an online retailer in Britain called Zavi, and it was thirty nine ninety nine for something fucking crazy like thirty five discs or something like that. It's everything that ever came out, and I watched this first series, and I thought, God, it's actually really good. And I sort of thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to do kind of little uh, round season by season roundup. So that'll be coming as well. Um, there is. Also, some stuff coming up on... I was going to do an episode on The Searchers, John Ford. That's very much um, in the planning stage. I've just got to kind of record it. So there's loads of things, basically, coming up. And also, oh, actually, sorry, also, there is um, a, a massive project in the works, which I've been working on now for about five months. And um, I, I'm going to probably... I, I reckon, personally, that will probably um, be something that will come out in the new year. But trust me, that is pretty big, um, the amount of work that I have put into those put into this kind of a series of shows is a uh, pretty epic and that should be a little bit of a clue as to what this one's going to be about but also i will be doing and once this kind of film's done i'm going to do an episode basically just to talk about my experiences of making an independent short film in britain because all that sounds incredibly boring i've already learned so much i've been keep i've been doing a few entries on the blog actually um, about my kind of thoughts and the frustrations and things like that that I've been going through so I will do an episode in which I kind of talk about uh, 
just what it takes to make a small budget uh, indie film in the UK now the fact that every kind of source of funding and help available to you has been ripped away from us by this new coalition government but for this episode that is going to be it you can find me on twitter at 24 framescast please do email me at 24 framescast at gmail.com and you can come to the blog at 24 framescast.blogspot.com i have been updating the blog a little bit more recently because i as well as kind of like it was, it was weeks before i was going through um putting anything new up and i'm going to try and kind of where possible uh, put articles up which are a little bit more kind of left field and away from the kind of the normal uh, iron man 3 talk and all that kind of bollocks but that's going to be it for the episode. Many thanks for listening, and I will be in contact soon. Thanks. Bye.